Yep, I'm calling from the holy city of Jerusalem. After this, I head to the airport. Hope they let me get on a plane because <laughs> I got to get my sorry little ass home. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have completed the year and we have completed the book of Genesis. <laughs> it's interesting that uh, two of the uh, Cedras are named after living by Yechi and Chaye uh, Sora. And paradoxically, uh, they don't talk about the lives, they talk about the death. Chaye Sora talks about her death and burial. Vayechi Yaakov talks about his death. Now, in our Parsha, at the end, the death verse of our Parsha is uh, chapter... 50, the last verse of chapter 50, verse 33. He's already blessed all the children. And now, Vayechal Yaakov, Jacob completed Letzavot et Banav to command his children. Vayesov Raglov, he gathered his legs onto the bed, El Hamito. Vayigva, he expired. Vayeosef el Amov, and he was gathered to his peoples. There's a little problem in that verse, and that is in everywhere else in Tanakh, it says, Vayigva, then Vayomos, Vayeosef. What happened to Vayomos? It's missing. Okay, you can say, Vayigva, he expired, but everywhere else in Bracious, it has the word Vayamos. And Rashi brings us uh, the Gomorrah in Tarnis, which we'll go into, and the Sifse Chachamim on the right here, quoting from that Gomorrah in Tarnis, that Jacob didn't die. Now, the Gomorrah in Tarnis describes a meal shared by Rav Nachman and Rabbi Yitzchak, two Amoroim, who were students of Rabbi Yochanan, first generation after the Churban. One was proficient in Halacha, and the other in Agada. Rabbi Yitzchak is the Agadist. Others known him as Rabbi Yitzchak Bar Pinchas, and he went from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel to spread the Torah of Rabbi Yochanan to Bavel. Rav Nachman asked Rabbi Yitzchak in this Gemara in Tainus uh, to share some chidushim, some words of Torah. And uh, Rabbi Yitzchak responded with the teaching of Rabbi Yochanan. Uh, that's not appropriate to talk during the meal, Divrei Torah. So after the meal, the Gemara recounts, Tainus in 5a, uh, after the meal, Rabbi Yitzchak shares a teaching with Rabbi Yochanan. And he quotes his teaching and says, Yaakov Avinu never died. Rav Nachman reacted with shock. He's the halachist. Rav Yitzchok is the agadist. Ready back there, we have this split in thinking. The agadic mind and the halachic mind. How could it be that the Torah records the eulogy said over Jacob by Joseph and Mitzrayim? And they brought him up to burial in the land of Israel if he never died. 
And Rabbi Yisak simply brings this Pasuk that I'm showing you on the screen, this Pasuk from Yirmiyahu 30.10, in which God tells Jacob that he need not fear, for both he and his descendants would be saved, interpreting it to mean that both the Jewish people and the forefather are alive. Let's look at that Pasuk. Anyone who comes to Rabbi Tversky's Malava Malkas, that's one of the Pismonim we sing. Altira Avdi Yaakov, the, the anxiety that we experience at Malava Malkov with the loss of the Neshama Yaseira and the impending anxiety of the secular week ahead. We comfort ourselves with a number of different songs, one of which is Altira of the Yaakov, Yaakov. So Jeremiah, this is chapter 30, so the doom and gloom is now being replaced with hope. Altira of the Yaakov, Noam Adonai. Altechas Yisrael, don't be dismayed, Israel. So Jacob and Israel, same person. Kihinini Moshiach HaMerachok. Merachok, from afar into the future, Jeremiah is looking into the end of the exile. I will save you. And your seed from the land of their captivity. We actually say this in synagogues that allow for the prayer of the state of Israel. We quote this verse every Shabbos before putting the Sefer Torah away. And so Rabbi Yochanan is actually, Rabbi Yochanan is learning midrashically through Rabbi Yitzchak, his teaching, that from this, Yaakov Avinu never died. Why? Because just like I will save them, Merochok, from afar, meaning in the future, Am Yisrael never died, that the 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 uh, culture and the genetic strain of Jacob never died. So too, going back to Jacob, it must be that he never died. Okay, how do we take this statement that Yaakov Avinu did not die? Clearly, the commentators have to go to have to quetch to explain uh, what on earth is going on. The Ria, for example, says that he fainted away. And he was in a comatose state. And only upon his return for burial in Israel did he die. But that's not the intention of Rabbi Yitzchak's teaching. Most likely the statement, Yaakov Ovinu never died, may have some mystical significance. But let's stick, let's stick with the rational so far. One explanation put forth by the Rajbah suggests that the statement points to the fact that unlike Abraham and Isaac, who had progeny, who were chosen, and progeny that were rejected, all of Jacob's children continued with the covenant of God. And so in this way, his legacy, in fact, himself never died. So that is a metaphor. His not dying in a rational interpretation is, in fact, uh, a metaphor. Now, the Maharal I'm jumping centuries into the 1600s, uh, picks up on that metaphorical and saying that the meter of Yaakov is titain MS le Yaakov. I give truth, the seal of MS. And God is MS. Adonai Eloheichem MS. Gemara in Shabbos 55. 
That is, everything that God does is MS. So Jacob possesses that mark of MS, Titan MS Yaakov, a pasuk in Micah 7, and he, he called him God, and one should recognize his exalted spiritual level. And he was like a God compared to the rest of humanity. And therefore it follows that the figure of Jacob symbolizes this total devotion to the divine as opposed to his father and grandfather. And so in the Maharal's opinion, Jacob attains a spiritual level because, he says, of the difficulties which he underwent, not in spite of them. We've had this before. You become the tzaddik by suffering. And I quote from the Nesivas Olam of the Maharal, for afflictions bring one out of the lowliness of the material world until one becomes holy. Wow. He's writing that in Prague, in Christian Prague. And since the mark of the seal of the Holy One is truth, and Jacob possesses this mark, ascribe truth to Jacob, he is called a God and one should recognize that level. And that's what it means that Jacob doesn't die. He doesn't die spiritually. Okay. Does he die? Does he not die? The Torah seems to say that he died. The Torah clearly says that he was embalmed, mourned by his children, buried in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. And so when Rabbi Yochanan is saying that he didn't die, it, he is alive just as his progeny are alive. That's the drush. It's, it's a midrashic trope, not semantic, just they are alive, he is alive. It could be interpreted in, 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 in rational ways and mystical ways. Um, we've said metaphorically, he lives on in his children. Every person wants that legacy for their children, that their dreams and their beliefs and the things that they struggle for will have a legacy in their children. Others say that this is a literal, a literal expression. Who are the others? In the commentary on Tainus, Rashi says, Our father Jacob did not die, but lives forever. The fact that the embalmers embalmed him was only because they thought he had died. They thought he had died. Now, we've had that in the Middle Ages, right? They used to have a little string in every uh, tomb connected out of the coffin to a bell on a tree nearby so that... If the guy woke up from a coma, they could disinter him. Others say that there is no metaphor here. The comparison is literal. Just as Jacob's children are literally alive, so too Jacob is physically alive. The third explanation is interesting from the Shloha Kodesh, Rebbe Zayah Horowitz. And he says, now he was also in Prague at the time of the Maharal. He says, that Jacob, because it says Jacob and Israel in that verse, he picks up on that. Do you remember it said, Moshiach um, Yisrael, Tachas Yisrael, Altira Avdi Yaakov, Valtechas Yisrael. He picks up on that two aspects, one signified by Israel, one signified by Jacob. Whereas Israel died, Jacob did not die and continues to live. Okay, now we're getting... Now we're getting mystical. Now we're getting mystical. Now, if we go mystical, if he goes mystical on us, uh, what do we find? Let's first uh, look at the Ramban. 
The Ramban, 12th century, writes as follows. Rashi points out that the word death does not apply to Jacob and that the sages said that he did not die. That's what Rashi says on that Pasuk in the Chumash, not just in the Gemara and Tainus. And the point of the Midrash he's quoting is that the souls of the righteous are bound up in the bonds of life. And Jacob's soul will put on a second garment that will not be taken off as he dies. Now, Ramban's commentary on the Torah operates at four different levels. Uh, the sense of pshat, the sense of moral, sensus moralis, the allusions to the future, that's sensus typicus, and the, me- the mystical interpretation, sensus mysticus. Again, sensus literalis, sensus moralis, sensus typicus, and sensus mysticus. The last of this is the approach he adopts when it says Yaakov lo meis. And what he says about it is deliberately obscured for the reason that in terms of the sociology of knowledge, he regards mysticism as a closed system. Remember, he didn't even want to get involved in mysticism until he was in jail after the disputation with the bishop of Barcelona and the Azrael of Girona comes to him and says, look, you're going to die in here. I can get you out, but you have to promise to learn the secrets of Torah from me. That's the legend about how he was introduced into the esoteric. And he doesn't want to reveal that in his parish on the Torah. He couches it. And the axis common to various members of the Ramban school of mystical thought, such as Rabbi Yitzhak Arama, Rabbi Isaac the Blind of Akko, uh, Rabbi Yoshua Ibn Shuib and Meir Avishula, was the view that death, is merely a transition from one body to another body. That the ordinary physical body in which we live, in the medieval view, is made up of four elements. We've talked about this, which together form the material world. Earth, water, air, and fire. There's also a fifth element called ether. A-E-T-H-E-R, ether, from which the heavenly world is built. And this provides a kind of transition stage between the astral body and the earthly body. Matter is hereby refined and purified. Matter has become eternal and not subject to the process of formation and destruction. And therefore, death is not complete annihilation, but a transition undergone by the soul from a body made up of the four earthly elements to an eternal body composed of ether known as the astral body. So by saying Jacob our father did not die, the Ramban is interpreting that statement in the medieval mystical terminology of the school of the Ramban, meaning that Jacob's soul deserted his earthly body, the body made up of the four elements, and dressed itself in an eternal body, the astral body. In this way, the Ramban softens Rashi's statement, understanding it not as a total denial of physical death, but as a conception of death, as a transition from the physical to the ephemeral to the astral. Okay, I want to bring to you the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who suggests in one of his talks that 
the reason Yaakov Avinu is the only one of the Ovos of whom the Torah does not say that he died is a mystical one. Remember, Yaakov is the sphera of Tiferes. Yosef is Yesod, the one below him, and Malchus is the Shechina. So Tiferes is the attribute of truth, and just as truth is immutable and eternal, so too Jacob has achieved immortality. What has he done? Very clever. He's melded Titein Emes Yaakov, that notion of the metaphor of Jacob as Titein Emes Yaakov from the rational interpreters, with the mystical interpretation of the Tiferes, of the Titein Emes Yaakov being Tiferes. The concept of truth has to be considered in the context of the system of logic that is used. In logic, the semantical principle of bivalent states that every declarative logical sentence expressing a proposition only has one truth value. It's either true or it's false. A logic satisfying this principle is called a two-valued logic or a bivalent logic. So A and non-A cannot coexist. A is A or it is not A, cannot be both. Aristotelian logic is an early example of bivalent logic. Therefore, you could have three values of truth. True, false, and a third value that could be in between true and false, or unknown. It is possible to view quantum logic as a three-value logic, wherein the third value is the superposition of true and false. And with that, the, Ramb- the, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe brings us to uh, quantum mechanics and classical physics and our common sense. But from the point of view of quantum mechanics, it could be that something is and is not at the same time. Okay, it's really good, and it's, it's, Alan's going to love this. So we're taking this verse from the 3rd century Gemara, and we are interpreting it semantically, not rationally, not metaphysically, and not even mystically. But we are taking it as a reduction the way the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, and saying that in quantum mechanics, um, a system is usually in a state of superposition of all possible states until it's observed. In this interpretation of quantum mechanics, I think, Alan, I'm right, it's called the Copenhagen interpretation, a top can spin clockwise and counterclockwise at the same time. Indeed, the system is described by a wave function, which tells you how likely the system is to be found in any one state. So Jacob could be considered to be in a state of superposition, being dead and being alive at the same time. Very nice. Leaves me cold. So let us talk about the psychological, because the psyche is the soul. And so I am going to point something about the loss of a loved one. What would make you say that Jacob didn't die? And I want to talk about defense mechanisms. Having lost my mother, I went through and I carefully documented the year of the loss. I called it my Kaddish year, and with a number of different poems, I kind of 
was able to describe, I wouldn't say the four stages of loss by Kubler-Ross, but let's just look at what a defense mechanism is. Because I relate to this Talmudic statement the only way I can relate to it, not through Hasidus, not through rational medieval mysticism or rational or even quantum mechanics. I'm sorry, Alan. But but I, I, I relate to it through psyche, through the soul. And if this is a spiritual pathway for me, what am I learning from this wonderful Agadist who tells us Yaakov Ovinu Lo Mace? He is telling us something about our inner selves. He's telling us about our defenses. What is a defense mechanism? It's the name applied in psychodynamic literature to processes or behaviors whose motives are unconscious and which are adopted in an ongoing manner to protect the self, to protect the ego from pain. For the most part, it involves to a greater or lesser degree a distortion of reality. In repression, for example, the best known mechanism, unwelcome psychic material is simply not allowed to enter consciousness. I've told you this many times. My patients with chronic pain who have fibromyalgia, 50 to 60 to 70 percent are women, of which half of them have had abuse in childhood. It's an incredible statistic. Doesn't make sense. You have pain. I can't figure it out. I've done every MRI, EMG, nerve test, blood test in the book. You got pain. And then when you start digging, you find out they were sexually abused. They were battered by a first husband, by a father, an uncle. The incidence is 20 times higher than normal population. It is as if they have repressed these traumatic events when they were powerless as children, which now come bubbling up, uh, not in the mind because they can't handle it, but through the body. That's what he means by repression. The second commonness cause of defense mechanism is denial. As its name implies, it's a defense mechanism whereby the existence of an unpleasant reality is denied. It couldn't happen to me, we said, about Corona. This really isn't happening to me. It's only a dream. I'll soon wake up from this nightmare. And this last example takes us straight to situations of loss. Every loss, even if it is only a material loss, and all the more a loss of a beloved person, a mother, a father, a sister, a child, Yankovavinu as an archetype, creates stress. Because when you love someone, that person becomes part of you. It's not merely a pleasing metaphor. It's a direct statement of psychological reality. A beloved individual is absorbed into our perception of ourselves. And then for me, saying the Kaddish was taking the pain of my mother out of my heart, which was a knife-like, and putting it into memory. 
Yiskadal the Yiskadash became a mantra for me. Three times a day, incessantly. Sometimes I would hop a Kaddish seven or eight times during two minchas. I would run between the two. There was this obsessiveness and I couldn't understand. And later it kind of bubbled up. Why? I wasn't trying to be from or hop another mitzvah. I promise you, I'm not that holy. But what was happening to me was I was, I was, trying to get out of that pain of the beloved part of myself that was so painful and such loss. Now, when we deny the loss and we prevent the emotional bite from being taken out of our heart, then the threat diminishes, of course, because you just are numb. You don't feel it. I think that these denial mechanisms help to us to explain uh, Rabbi Yitzhak's position, a position which is not uncommon in serious loss, when the automatic first reaction is often one of denial. It didn't happen. Jacob, our father, didn't die can be understood as a denial mechanism of exactly this type. It is a commentator's emotional response to a loss that is hard to digest, the death of Yaakov Ovinu. And denial helps one to overcome the threatening implications of this reality, which then brings us to other areas in our lives where we deny as a tool to prevent us facing the reality of our spiritual development that we need to do. And I love this explanation from this recovery center, the stages of denial. And here you can see that denial Type A denial is a person sees, understands, knows they got a problem. But when confronted about the problem, they deny it. So that's called a lie. Forget about it. We're not going to talk about that. Let's talk about type T, type B denial. And he he split, he or she splits into two types of denial. Do you see this? Intellectual denial, which is based on a lack of understanding. A, per a person who thinks he's an alcoholic. He thinks an alcoholic is a degenerate bum who lives on Skid Row. And he thinks that the young executive who drives a BMW lives in a nice condo and makes $200,000 a year and spends $200 a work of cocaine weekly, denies having a problem, can't pay his bills, right? That's a different definition of a drug addict, right? As if they're different because of our class bias. Let's look at the last one, which is what I want to end up today. Spiritual denial. Spiritual denial, and I want to take what we've just said, the whole sheer about Yaakov Avinu Lomais, about the defense mechanisms and about the way we use denial as a protection mechanism. Here he tells us, this is the hardest thing to deal with, this spiritual denial. This denial will lock a person into compliance, blocking any possibility for ongoing teshuvah. That is, that, that there are, the goal of teshuvah or chemical dependency or anything else is to help you go through compliance, meaning intellectually and spiritually agreeing that you have a problem. So the denial can be very subtle. Stage one, he, he doesn't believe he's got a problem. I'm not an alcoholic. Fine. Now. We tell them how to overcome stage two, one. Stage two 
is denial when a person he's done tshuva. Take me, I'm a bald tshuva. I'm keeping showing me Torah and mitzvahs. And you think you're doing the mitzvahs and you're shockling and you got your tzitzis out and a big bri- black brim hat, but you deny the need for ongoing tshuva. What brought you to the spiritual path was the God-shaped hole in your heart. That didn't go away because you do a bunch of halachic observances. It, rep- it represents the denial of being powerless. And I thought that that is an amazing statement. The denial of being powerless. That is the hardest thing to keep alive as someone who is on the spiritual path. And the third stage of denial is the denial of the need to be willing to go to any length to keep that alive. So I thought that this was a very nice way uh, to end up um, and bless us all, bless us all in looking at our spiritual lives and taking comfort from Rabbi Yitzchak in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, the, the great Agadis. Not from what he intended to say or didn't intend to say. I'm too postmodern for that. But the, the very words, Yaakov lo meis, stuck out like a sore thumb from the text. It just jutted out and, and it demanded a kind of interrogation and a struggle with what does that mean for me? What does it mean? Because my mother is no longer with me and I miss her dearly. And for me to say she didn't die as I sit here in this apartment with her empty bed and her empty chair and just the memory and the pictures around me that cause so much pain to this day, I think this is a healing text because it points us to the need to do the inner spiritual work uh, which could easily slide us down the road of repression, depression, denial. And the important thing is to take it with us and to bite it, bite into it, allow it to percolate and heal, move it from the pain into the loving memory that we all need. May this secular year be a better one, and may we all use these beautiful Midrashim uh, to heal us.